0: and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast in legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Spears Gilbert professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Aliza Schatzman, president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. We will discuss her new article, The Conservative Case for the Judiciary, Judiciary Accountability Act, which is published in the Harvard Journal on Legislation. So welcome back to the show, Eliza.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, and I'm really interested to talk about your new paper and and what you've been working on since we last spoke. Uh, but for listeners who maybe haven't heard your previous episode, uh, what is the Legal Accountability Project?
1: Sure. So the Legal Accountability Project is a nonprofit I launched in June 2022, which basically seeks to ensure that law clerks have a positive clerkship experience and then extend support and resources to the ones who don't. I think of the nonprofit as the resource I wish existed as a law student applying for a clerkship, a law clerk facing harassment and unsure where to turn for help, and a former clerk engaging in the formal judicial complaint process. And as I kind of alluded to, and as we talked about in my previous episode, I did face gender discrimination, harassment, and ultimately retaliation during and after my DC Superior Court clerkship a few years ago, which was the impetus for some of my scholarship on this topic, and then obviously the launch of the nonprofit.
0: So I think we should talk about your own experiences in a moment. I I wonder if you could you could also say a little bit something more specific about like how you envision the this n- relatively new organization to be kind of approaching and achieving these goals. So sort of what have you been doing so far and and what do you see in the future?
1: So, the Legal Accountability Project works on a couple major initiatives in collaboration with law schools aimed at infusing transparency into what is a really opaque clerkship application process. It's premised on this basic set of facts. I spend a lot of time talking to students and law school administrators. To students, I say, So, you want a clerk? Great, I encourage you to clerk. How would you avoid judges who harass their clerks? Well, some students would say, I'd ask somebody, but who are you going to ask? Law school administrators, clerkship directors, and deans tell students to do their research before applying for clerkships. But again, what research are they going to do when little information is available to students about judges who mistreat their clerks or judges who create exemplary work environments? A handful of law schools conduct a post-clerkship survey of their alums. Some, but not all, keep these in searchable databases. Law schools understand these don't capture the scope of the problem because law clerks who face mistreatment are notoriously unwilling to report that back to their law schools. And this is really premised this clerkships database that the Legal Accountability Project has created is going to democratize information about judges, ensuring that law students at as many law schools as possible have as much info about as many judges as possible before making really important decisions about their careers, considering the outsized influence that a judicial clerkship and one's relationship with their judge have on future career success. This is the resource that I wish existed at WashU Law when I was a student applying for clerkships. And as I later discovered after facing mistreatment and circling back with WashU, folks there knew that the judge who harassed me had harassed other clerks. This was not formally documented in a database, and they were able to withhold this information from me. So I'm really seeking to infuse as much transparency as we can into this process. It's about fostering beneficial clerkship experiences by arming folks with the info they need before applying, because it's particularly historically marginalized groups, not to generalize, but women, LGBTQ folks, non-white folks, first-gen students who lack this critical access to information before applying for clerkships. This is going to diversify clerkship applicant pools and judicial chambers by just increasing the information sharing among schools and among students and law clerks.
0: Why do you think a lot of schools don't share this this kind of information? Is it just because they don't have a method of collecting it or sharing it amongst schools already? Or do they have an incentive not, in some cases, to share that kind of information with students?
1: So it definitely depends on the school. And at this point, I've been interfacing with about 70 law schools worth of deans and clerkship directors. So I have a decent sense of what each school does internally and their willingness to potentially data share with other schools. There are a handful of schools that really do not think this is a problem. And unfortunately, like I said... Law clerks are just notoriously unwilling to report back to their law schools, but then they reach out to me to confide in me and point the finger at their law schools. It enables some clerkship directors to really disclaim responsibility for these problems, to say things to me like, I don't need your project. I know about all the judges. Or we're blessed to work with only good judges. All our alums have a positive experience. Like Students and alums know that's nonsense, and they reach out to me to talk about that. But that is a handful of schools. I think one or two really believe that these are their, um, you know, unique clerkship resources that people go to these schools to access this info and they don't want to share it. That's a really small subset. And then, yeah, there are a bunch of schools that just don't have the resources to collect this information. I worry that some law schools do not fully want to have this information. I think some of them like the idea of interfacing with my nonprofit because it takes the onus off them to collect this info, vet it, consider whether to share it. I worry when clerkship directors tell me, you know, I have to weigh a positive and a negative report about the same judge. Do I share both or neither? It's obviously both. And I worry also that some folks, some admins are kind of serving as the gatekeepers of this information. They say, well, everybody has to go through me if they want a clerkship. Well, what if you are some sort of marginalized identity or for whatever reason, you don't want to go through the clerkships director? You need the info when you need it, whether that's the first day of 1L fall, whether that is two years post-grad when you're considering a career transition, not when gatekeeping clerkship directors want to give you the info.
0: So your organization is is pretty new. To what extent have you been able to collect a quantity of this important information already and begin sharing it? Or is that more kind of a a project that's still in the works?
1: So it's in the works right now. Um, Our clerkships database is a working prototype. It was built this past summer by our database engineers, and they're working on the final build right now. We are working to identify our initial set of law school partners, and we are going to be working with some other stakeholders in the legal community who are also going to send out our post-clerkship survey to their enormous membership lists. And I'm very grateful to them. That's going to fill out the database and ensure a positive user experience for students when the database goes live. It does put the onus on the Legal Accountability Project to vet to ensure that everybody who reports into the database clerked for who they say they did. We're not posting any unverified reports in our database. Everybody creates an account with a name, email address, password, class year, class affiliation. Um, They can report anonymously if they choose. Many will report anonymously, but they still need to be verified by LAP. So it is in the works. I mean, I love that students and clerks reach out to me every day to ask when the database is going to go live so they can report into it, read the reports, just folks from every aspect of the legal profession, and a lot of judges, which I think we'll talk about in conjunction with my article. Are reaching out to convey their support and to ask again when the database will go live, so their former clerks can report into it. Some of those conservative judges, which was kind of the impetus for this article that I wrote.
0: Cool, that's amazing. Why? Well, I'm really glad you're doing that, and I'm sure it'll be a really valuable resource to law students making that decision whether or not to clerk for particular judges. I, I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about the experiences you had that led you to create the Legal Accountability Project and the extent to which you've heard about or heard from other people who've had similar experiences that may have informed that decision as well?
1: Sure. So I decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019-20 to term because I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. The messaging at my law school, like at most law schools, was uniformly positive. This was going to be a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship. This position was going to confer only professional benefits. So I started this clerkship in August of 2019. And pretty soon after, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender. He'd kick me out of the courtroom, tell me I made him uncomfortable, and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk told me I was bossy and aggressive and nasty. The day I found out that I passed DC bar exam, he told me, oh, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And it just kind of went on like this. It was really just devastating. Um, I mean, I remember crying myself to sleep at night, crying on the walk to work in the morning, wishing I could be reassigned, but my workplace didn't have any sort of mechanism to do that. During the pandemic, I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and work remotely. And the judge basically ignored me before firing me, telling me that I made him uncomfortable, that I lacked respect for him, but that he didn't want to get into it. And then he hung up on me. So I reached out to a couple entities, including my law school, WashU, and that's when I found out that the judge who harassed me had harassed other clerks and that law school officials were aware of it at the time I had accepted the clerkship. So that was pretty devastating. And it took me about a year to get back on my feet after that. But I did eventually secure my dream job in the D.C. U.S. attorney's office. And I moved back to D.C. in the summer of 2021, hoping to put all that behind me. And I was two weeks into training at the USAO. I'd already started working there when I received some more really devastating news. And that's kind of what altered the course of my life and certainly my career trajectory. The USAO told me the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. So I filed a judicial complaint, hired attorneys Participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Eventually obtained a copy of the negative reference through private settlement negotiations after my FOIA request was denied in full by the USIO, which was outrageous and misleading. I also found out the judge was on administrative leave, pending an investigation into other misconduct at the time he'd filed that negative reference about me. But the USIO was never alerted to that. Uh, January 2022 pursuant to the terms of our private settlement agreement, separate from anything the judiciary can or would do for a law clerk, the former judge issued a clarifying statement addressing some, but not all of his outrageous claims about me. But by then the damage had been done. It had been way too long. I was pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. And I now share my experience a lot on law school campuses and in other forums And I just really seek to underscore that my negative experience is not rare, but it's one that is rarely shared publicly due to the culture of silence and fear around the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. And my first public statement was written testimony before the House Judiciary Committee in support of the Judiciary Accountability Act, which would extend Title VII protections to judiciary employees, including law clerks. And I knew that I stood on the brave shoulders of law clerks who'd come before me, folks who spoke out, and the response was not nearly as positive.
0: yeah, I mean, I gotta say that just not only feels like really spineless behavior by the u s attorney's office, but I can only imagine how much of a betrayal it must have felt like to know that the people at you law- at your law school who you trusted to kind of give you advice about your career decisions would have withheld such critically salient and important information about the very choice on which they were advising you.
1: It was really devastating. I think it became increasingly devastating over time as I interfaced with more law schools and found out that this is not unique to WashU. And I went back and listened to our previous episode last night um, in advance of this, and I said... You know, I'm not trying to point the finger at them. I'm working productively now. Um, that you know, that didn't age well because we're not working super productively now. And that's unfortunate. I think it's sad that WashU students are going to go another year without these desperately needed resources. I don't mean to point the finger at any one law school. But while I know other law schools do these same things, I can speak from personal experience with WashU. And they illustrate that these are problematic behaviors. Law schools have some misaligned incentives in terms of info they share. And attorneys reach out to me from across the profession, across the political spectrum, and they perceive this to be the case. It is only these law schools who continue to claim, and just a small handful, but continue to claim that they are working in students' best interests. I don't know if that is always the case. Um, and I, that is something I worry about as I interface with some of them.
0: Mm. Well, so transitioning a little bit, uh, what is the Judiciary uh, Accountability Act and what specific problems is it intended to solve? I mean, we know that there's a problem with judicial misconduct. How is the Judiciary Accountability Act? Kind of intended specifically to address those problems. What problem specifically is it identified, and what sort of mechanism is it intended to use to kind of accomplish its goals, as it were?
1: So, the Judiciary Accountability Act, or the JAA, HR forty eight twenty seven and S two five five three, does a couple important things. Um, the banner aspect of it, it would extend Title Seven to judiciary employees, including law clerks and federal public defenders enabling folks like me with experiences like mine to sue our harassers and seek damages for harms done to our lives. It would also amend Title 28 of the U.S. Code, which is Judiciary and Judicial Procedure, to redefine judicial misconduct to include gender discrimination, harassment, retaliation. It would also specify that judges who retire, resign, or die amid a misconduct investigation, those won't cease. Um, historically, some of our notorious harassers, like former Judge Kaczynski, stepped down amid a misconduct investigation. Judiciary currently loses jurisdiction over those folks. It would also standardize employee dispute resolution or EDR plans among the courthouses. That is the internal dispute resolution mechanism by which a law clerk can seek reassignment, get away from the judge who is harassing him or her. And it would also implement a judicial misconduct prevention policy um, and some other workplace policies that are very important. And it would also impose some data collection and transparency requirements on the judiciary, requiring them to collect and report data on diversity or the lack thereof in law clerk and federal defender hiring, the outcomes of judicial misconduct complaints. And the results of an annual workplace culture assessment. These data collection requirements are so important. The dearth of data in this space has really allowed judges to evade accountability, has allowed judiciary leadership to disclaim responsibility for these problematic behaviors. I believe that gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation are pervasive and unaddressed in the federal courts. There is limited data, and it's only for individual circuits, like the D.C. Circuit conducted a workplace assessment last year. They found that 57 employees in that circuit alone faced harassment or retaliation, an additional 134 witnessed or heard about problematic behaviors. There is an enormous data mismatch between those data, which suggests this is a problem we should address. And the fact that between like five and 11 complaints are filed by law clerks against judges under the jc Act, the formal judicial complaint process each year, that is because the mechanisms are broken for law clerks to seek accountability. They are not protected against retaliation. And what keeps law clerks silent right now is the fear that what happened to me will happen to them.
0: So you say in your in your paper that some people in the judiciary in particular, but or related to the judiciary, say that, well, this isn't really that big of a problem. It seems like one of those situations where it's like, well, look, no one's reporting, therefore it must not be happening.
1: Right. But the issue is when that happens in a workplace and there's just a real lack of complaints, that's often a red flag that people do not feel safe filing a complaint. Not that there are no problems.
0: Yeah, right. And I mean, are there internal disincentives to filing complaints, or, or barriers, or reasons law clerks don't don't file complaints? I mean, you, you know, the, the, it seems like the data is hard to gather. Is there is, is there a kind of are there structural reasons why we aren't seeing a sort of documentation of this misbehavior in a way that would adequately and accurately uh, allow us to identify kind of what's taking place and 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 kind of have a better sense of, of what's going on.
1: There are, and I want to differentiate between the two types of complaints, employee dispute resolution or EDR complaints. Those are the internal ones that a law clerk would file basically to seek reassignment. Uh, Monetary remedies are not available. This is just to, you know, improve the clerkship experience, get away from the harasser. Um, Law clerks reasonably believe that those are neither impartial nor confidential processes because other judges in the courthouse where the complainant law clerk and the misbehaving judge work are tasked with investigating, potentially disciplining their colleagues, and judges are just notoriously unwilling to discipline their colleagues. Uh, Law clerks also need to hire an attorney, and the process takes three to six months. This will overshadow the majority of their clerkship, and if you are being mistreated, let alone fired, how are you going to afford to hire an attorney? And attorneys are just notoriously unwilling to take on law clerk cases. There's also formal complaints under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act or the J.C. and D. Act. Those would normally be filed by a former clerk once they have a new job. Um, again, they would need to hire an attorney. There are no remedies available for them. That is a formal complaint process by with a, which a judge could theoretically be disciplined, reprimanded, removed from the bench, which never happens because there would need to be a congressional impeachment Similarly, neither impartial nor confidential, other judges in the circuit where the complainant law clerk and misbehaving judge work, tasked with investigating their colleagues. Um, The judiciary does not collect and report any data on employees' use of the EDR plan. What they've told me is it is not required by statute. So that's why they're not doing it. Uh, Judiciary recently announced, after several years of advocates poking at them, that they're going to conduct a workplace culture assessment. They have specifically not committed to reporting the results publicly, which I think is an enormous red flag about the type of data they may or may not report, the type of data they expect to collect.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it seems like the judiciary is holding everyone else to a standard here that it's unwilling to impose on itself.
1: Absolutely. And I think both exempting the judiciary from Title Seven and also some of the other problematic issues we just talked about, kind of send the message to misbehaving judges that they are above the laws they interpret. The judiciary likes to call itself an exemplary workplace, but they should be then setting the standard for workplace safety and civility, respect, fairness. They are just not, and it's not all judges. It's judiciary leadership more than the rank and file But we got to start somewhere. And the half measures they have taken over the past few years in the wake of allegations against former Judge Kaczynski are just insufficient half measures at best. They're not moving fast enough. We send so many folks each year into clerkships where folks just do not have the information they need. They are mistreated. The data is not collected. The legal community continues to put this enormous premium on judicial clerkships. And Look, I think clerkships are great for many people, but you got to have the info you need. You got to be able to identify a positive work environment. And when you can't and when you're not protected by workplace protections, let alone Title VII, it's really a problematic situation for new attorneys, the newest members of our profession, the next generation of thinkers and leaders.
0: So what's the current status of the Judiciary Accountability Act? I mean, this seems like a really big problem. We need to do something about it. This is a statute intended to do something about it. Is it going to do something about it?
1: We'll see. So there was a House Judiciary hearing last March for which I submitted written testimony. The House bill has about 26 co-sponsors, one Republican. I was at the hearing um, Republicans seemed very receptive to at least the Title VII aspect of this, with a serious understanding that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Senate bill has about six co-sponsors, no Republicans. Neither of those numbers represents the scope of bipartisan support on the Hill for this legislation. But it's about keeping this issue top of mind for legislators when there are so many other issues that they're thinking about. I am still hopeful there will be a Senate hearing this year on this bill. It is critically important. I hate that people only pay attention to these issues when there's a big, flashy hearing, but um, we need one. And this issue is so important. Uh, Law clerks, I said on the last podcast last year, cannot wait another year for these urgently needed reforms. Now we're like nine months later and they're even more urgent.
0: (laughs) So in your article, which recently appeared in the Harvard Journal on Legislation. Congratulations on the, the publication, Thank by you. the way. Um, you argue specifically that conservative slash Republican lawmakers ought to be supportive of of this bill. You know, why do you think conservatives should be supportive? And maybe what are some of the objections that you're trying to show them they shouldn't be concerned about?
1: Yeah, so this article kind of came about over the past year's worth of advocacy as I was reaching out to House and Senate GOP offices to talk about this legislation, and I was seeing a lot of private support, and they were making some interesting arguments about why their bosses might or might not support this. I was also dialoguing with a lot of GOP judicial appointees who were overwhelmingly supportive of the JA and other accountability legislation. That's kind of how this came about. You know, I think of the conservative case for the JA as two things. The first is that this is not a partisan issue, period. Both Democratic and Republican judicial appointees mistreat their clerks. Both liberal and conservative clerks face harassment and retaliation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this aligns with some important conservative principles. First, curbing government abuses of power. Second, and relatedly, enforcing the rule of law. It is outrageous that an entire branch of the government, the judiciary, is arguably lawless and judges who mistreat their clerks are committing enormous abuses of power on the government's dime. So that's kind of the argument. I see a couple areas of pushback. The first is that, well, there is the argument about judicial independence, which kind of comes up. That's not a conservative argument, but that's a judiciary argument that's always kind of floating in the ether which I think is nonsense because the JA and extending title seven does nothing. It's, we're not talking about suing judges for their rulings. I, I'm not arguing that at all. We're saying that we should treat judges as employers running a small workplace. Just like you graduate from law school, you go work on the Hill, you go work for the executive branch, you work at a law firm, you're harassed by your employer. You can sue. If you decide to spend your first year or two out of law school working for and learning from a judge you are uniquely exempt from the right to sue. Some of the other arguments I hear, the JA does a bunch of different things. One creates this centralized commission on judicial integrity to oversee some of the programs, the EDR plans, the workplace misconduct prevention policy, the data collection and transparency requirements. There is some conservative concern that that is too centralized and that these courthouses should each be their own decentralized little work environments opposed to decentralized government but there is nothing about these different workplaces that makes them unique and the judiciary has just historically failed to regulate whether you are a remote courthouse in a remote state or whether you are in a big city with a bunch of courthouses just down the street the other argument i hear is maybe we should focus on title seven now sever that from the rest of the bill and pass the other protections later um I disagree. I think we're gaining momentum now. And some people will sue under Title VII. Many more will take advantage of the other protections under the JA. And then one of the other arguments I hear from some conservative offices is, will people use this? Or is this a needless protection? Are law clerks and federal public defenders actually going to sue judges? Now, you know, we have a culture of silence and fear in the legal community. We are a far ways away from a lot of law clerks suing judges, yes. But there's a former federal public defender named Karen Strickland suing judiciary officials in the Fourth Circuit right now. So we know people are itching to use this. So those are kind of the arguments for and against. And that's, yeah.
0: To what extent has the judiciary or particular judges been supportive of this act, kind of in your personal experience or in terms of what you've you've heard? And has, you know, has that been more individual judges, judiciary at large, sort of what's going on in terms of how the judiciary thinks about this? this act?
1: So I speak with a lot of individual judges, both state and federal. And what federal judges tell me is they generally support the JAA or some other increased judicial accountability mechanism. They say two interesting things. The first is, I ascended from the state court bench. When I was a state court judge, I was subject to similar state court legislation, Section 1983, Title Seven. other things. Nothing about me magically changed when I received life tenure and became a federal judge. That's a group of them. The other group say, I didn't even know I was exempt from Title Seven. So rank and file judges, fine with this. I think I, I speak with judges who are doing the right thing and aren't super worried that clerks are going to be suing them because they're not harassing anybody. Judiciary leadership is just aggressively opposed to the JA. any efforts at further regulation. A couple of judges testified at the House Judiciary hearing for which I submitted written testimony, and they they continue to claim that this is not pervasive, that EDR is totally sufficient, nothing further is needed. They've been making these arguments definitely since 1995. When the other two branches of government, the executive and congressional branches, became subject to Title Seven under the Congressional Accountability Act and the Executive and Presidential Office Accountability Act. The judiciary started making these arguments that EDR was sufficient back in 1995, and they have just stuck with that, despite evidence that law clerks do not believe that EDR is sufficient protection They are not utilizing these mechanisms. And since the judiciary won't release any data on employees' use of the EDR plan, you know, we can't confirm or deny who's using it and how they feel about it. Since they won't release any data on workplace culture, we can neither confirm nor deny. The very first step toward accountability is collecting and reporting data. And I think it's frustrating that judiciary leadership is just so buried in the sand on this. I don't think they represent rank and file judges. Um, it's too bad they attempt to speak for so many judges.
0: So in closing, what are the next steps from, from your end? What are you looking to, or what is you, what are you and your organization looking to do kind of going forward to promote and encourage the, the passage of, of this bill?
1: So, we are a nonprofit, so legislative advocacy can be a part, but not an enormous part of the work I do. In my capacity as a former clerk, I will definitely be advocating for this legislation. But the first thing is on the front end, working to ensure positive clerkship experiences, helping folks identify positive work environments through the centralized clerkships reporting database. Down the road, we do hope to conduct a similar workplace culture assessment of the federal and state judiciaries to collect and report some data on these issues. I think I am very hopeful that this legislation will ultimately pass, and I will continue to advocate for it. But recognizing the real dearth of workplace protections right now, it is so important that my nonprofit's work move forward, gather steam help folks to, on the front end, identify a judge who's going to create that exemplary workplace The Judiciary likes to talk about.
0: Amazing. Well, Aliza, as always, it was great to talk to you. I'm, I'm really glad to have you back on the show, and uh, I couldn't be more supportive of this project.
1: Thank you. <laughs>
2: it coming to you so you're counting sheep and losing sleep well you had it coming to you you didn't think of consequences didn't even think that I'd feel bad now you're coming to your senses but it's too too sad cause I can't be had so you're going through what I went through you had it coming to you cause you weren't fair to our affair you had it coming to you you were heading for a tumble and the crash was overdue so cry if you dare see if I care you had it coming to you